Welcome to the C.S. Lewis Festival Scholar Series. I'm your host, David Krause. In this fascinating and very enlightening episode recorded at the C.S. Lewis Festival, renowned poet, author, singer-songwriter, Anglican priest, Reverend Dr. Michael Geith provides a guided tour of Dante's Paradiso and how Dante influenced other renowned poets and writers, including C.S. Lewis. Be sure to stick around after the lecture to hear how you can keep the C.S. Lewis Festival lamp lit and keep this series coming. Now, enjoy Malcolm Guide. It's very good to see you all again. We had a, a, what a, what a wonderful place we found ourselves in. I hope you've had a little wonder. I wandered down in that beautiful crisp autumn light and I thought I'm in a place called Bay, bay View. I'd better go and view the bay. And it was lovely. But I also, I also uh, walked into that, the Crouse Chapel there and saw the stained glass windows, which are actually in some ways quite a nice way for me to think about uh, the way Dante handles the, the third and final book of the Commedia, the Paradiso, because it is greatly, it is the heaven of light, but light broken into colors and light shining through the people he encounters. There's something wonderful, I think, about stained glass windows because that's almost to use, to use the philosophical C.S. Lewis Alexander terms about contemplation and enjoyment. You get both. You look at the window, you may contemplate it, but when you stand with the light streaming through, you only not only see its outlines, but through it you see a light coming towards you. You have a kind of experience of transfiguration. What I particularly like about the windows in that little chapel is they're not just sort of plaster saints and angels. There's two little kids going down to the beach, kind of holding hand and looking at the sea, and there's, there's sailing boats and there's an anchor. So it's the things that are the pleasures of our own life here, transfigured, set in God's house with his light shining through them. Now, that's exactly the way we should think about heaven. Of course, you could say Dante Seltem set himself an impossible task. Every single one of the, the, the three books of the, the Commedia has 33 cantos in it, right? And a canto is quite a long um, set of his tets, as you know, there's often, you know, 90 or 100 tercets in each canto, right? So he's going to write quite a lot about heaven. He knows his scripture back to front. I've had, I've had several, several students, both for me and for, for, for the great Robin Kirkpatrick, the real expert at Cambridge, discussing Dante's use of scripture. And whole books could be written about them. He's thoroughly soaked in all of the scriptures. So he knows that I hath not seen, nor hath ear heard, nor hath it entered into the heart of man what good things God has prepared for those who love him. He knows that even if St. Paul was caught up into the third heaven, which is the heaven of Venus, I knew a man, whether in the flesh or out of the flesh, who was caught up into the third heaven, and there he saw things which you, just, you can't speak about, that all human language fails. So a lot of poets have gone, okay, fair enough, I'll t I can take a hint, you know, <laughs> I won't even write about this at all. But Dante sets himself this challenge, though he says at the very end, these are only hints and guesses and images and what I really saw, you'll have to be there yourself. 
But Dante took the hint because he believed that um, he, Daddy, Dante made the effort to describe paradise, to talk about the journey into the heart and mind of God, because he believed that everything in this world from the earth herself to the skies above to all the different, as he believed, the different spheres, the crystalline spheres of the, of the ordered and made cosmos, the beautiful, intricate thing that God had made, was itself a kind of allegory. <laughs> that God's whole creation was not only beautiful and worthy of love in itself, but that it was telling us about something more than itself. In other words, that it was a stained glass window and that we'd only really see it when we saw the light of Christ shining through every particle of it. And he just wondered whether poetry might help us a little bit to get there. And he had had the experience as a young man of seeing a mortal flesh and blood young woman in Florence. And for a moment, seeing her, to borrow the phrase, sub specie eternitatis, seeing her the way God saw her and seeing a light shine out of her. And he loved not only that light, but he loved the glimpse of God that he saw through that light. She was, for him, at that moment in Florence as a young man, a theotokos, as the Greeks say, a God-bearer. That's what they say about Mary as well. So he began to wonder whether that might be true of almost any image if we gave it back to God. Any life shot through with the light of God. So he set himself the task of writing about uh, the heavens. And I want to, just to give you a flavor and just a sense of the, the awesome thing he's undertaking, let me read you a little bit of what Dorothy Sayers says about the way Dante writes about heaven. She says this, heaven, of course, has always been inconceivable, <laughs> passing man's understanding. Of the few poets or prophets who have undertaken to describe it, even fewer have dared to keep us there for long. The angel comes, the river is passed, and all the trumpets sound on the other side, but we do not enter the city. Milton's heaven is so distracted with wars and tumults that except for a few isolated and magnificent lines, he's never really called upon to present us with the picture of changeless and inexhaustible bliss. The same perhaps may not unfairly be said of the author of the Apocalypse. Of all the poets of fulfillment, Dante alone has had the astonishing courage to take us into heaven and keep us there for 33 long cantos, building it to his ecstatic climax without introducing any grandiose events, any scenery or any incantatory dreaminess which suspends belief. His heaven is at first sight almost disconcertingly looted. It is only as it piles up line upon line, dogma upon dogma, sphere upon sphere, to the exquisite and mathematical exactitude of the final vision, that we realize how much of its power to convince lies precisely in its lucidity. Of the light of heaven, Dante says, quote, pure intellectual light, fulfilled with love, love of the true God, filled with all delight, transcending sweet delight, all sweets above. The, the, the word intellectual is significant. The light is the light of reality. And then here comes the sentence I'd really, really like you to notice from Dorothy Sayers. It is in the paradise, in the paradiso, that we find affirmed with the utmost clarity and consistency the fundamental Christian proposition that the journey to God is the journey into reality. 
To know all things in God is to know them as they really are. For God is the only absolute and unconditioned reality of whose being all contingent realities are at best the types and mirrors, at worst the shadows and distortions, at best the created universe, at worst the deliberately willed delusion which we call hell. When Dante and his poem venture as best they may into the world of reality, his guide is Beatrice, who represents his own personal experience of the imminence of the creator in the creature. So that's a little bit of preface about what a kind of awesome thing it is. Now, if you just look for a moment at our painting of Dante Il Sul Poema, we went down through the hell, we, we, we'd been up through the mountain, we got through the fire, we get there, he's, he's, I told you I did a bit of a plot spoiler how Beatrice gives him a bit of a ticking off. But actually that's how he knows it's the real Be Beatrice. It's not, it's not some little wish fulfillment fantasy of his, he burnt all that stuff away. He's got to love the real woman. So just before that happens, when he's reattained, if you like, the fullness of the stature of what we should have been if we'd never fallen. Virgil, in fact, it's the last thing that Virgil says to him, who's guided him all the way through. He says, uh, I crown and mitre thee over thyself. I crown and mitre thee over thyself. Now the crown and the mitre represent the two external authorities which are here to guide us and help us grow to be better people. The crown represents the authority of government, the authority and sense of how we live together in community, the agreement that we'll have certain rules and that we'll tell the truth to each other and that we will... And at first, so the wearer of the crown when we're little kids is mum and dad. You know, and they tell us not to pick and steal and not to tell lies and, you know, that if we borrowed that thing from our sister, we have to give it back not broken. And if it's broken, we have to say, I'm really sorry and take some of our pocket money and help to make it better. You know, that's the stuff that the crown teaches us. And our little ego doesn't want to do that. We have to learn. The mitre in Dante's world is the authority of the church or the Bible that teaches us the, the divine things. And... We learn that stuff in Sunday school and we go to church. And when we're little, at first, it's outside us, right? It's like the law written on the tablets of stone. But do you remember the prophecy in Jeremiah where it said, before I wrote these tablets on stone, because you had stony hearts, <laughs> but now I'm going to write them in your hearts. I'm going to write the commandments inside you in flesh. And there's that movement, which we call growing up, from, <laughs> from having to do stuff because other people told you to do it, to learning enough about the truth and reality of how we love each other, to have that law in your heart. So you don't need somebody to wag your finger at you, and you'll do the right thing even if nobody's looking. Yeah? Which we call integrity or character. Now, it's not a simple thing. Anybody who's cut who's cut um, letters in stone knows it takes a lot of doing. But actually to write those same letters in the human heart takes a lifetime. God says he's going to do that, and he's in the process of doing that. And you could say that uh, the purgatorio is gradually learning to take all that external stuff and make it part of heart of who you are. So that's why Virgil says, I crown and mitre thee over thyself. You don't need those external authorities. 
And that's the beginning of the condition of heaven. In the condition of heaven, they finally said, thy will be done in me. And they've made this astonishing discovery, which is the thing they never discovered in hell, which is that actually, when you let your will go into his will, your own will is given back to you, but free from sin. And in his will, several of the characters say, in his will is our peace. So Dante, just like he met some well-known people, and not only well-known famous people, but just people known to him and his family, who were themselves historically what they were, but came in the allegory to symbolize other things. So as he rises through the spheres of heaven, he actually also meets people and learns through them and from them. But there's this difference that all the people he meets in heaven are not only saved, but sanctified. They are fully being the, the person God always wanted them to be, the beautiful bit of his creation. And there, the beam of God's love is shining through them. So here's a, an example of the difference. <clears throat> when they're descending through hell, um, and they, Virgil stops some of the characters, the famous characters in hell, and gets them to talk to Dante. First of all, they don't want to talk to Dante. They're just, they're so stuck in their own ego, they're doing their own thing. Then the first time they talk, they talk about themselves. Like it was never my fault, everybody else thing. I always did it, you know, you should have, I should have been there. That, you know, all that stuff. And it takes ages before you finally get some sense out of them, right? And even in the Purgatorio, though they're very polite to Dante, they're all kind of going like, I've got to get on with my salvation. I'm trying to do stuff here, you know. So, but... When he first meets people in the Paradiso, the first people he sees coming along to him, they look at him with great joy and they say, it's a wonderful phrase, they say, here comes someone who will augment our loves. Here's a new friend and the circle of love is going to be greater. And they all want to know what's happening to Dante. They pay attention to the other. It's a journey into reality. When they get up into the circle of the moon, um, there's a wonderful bit where Beatrice starts explaining a whole long bit of science to, to, to Dante. And um, lots of commentators have said, hey, I'm reading a spiritual book. Why have I got all this stuff about reflecting mirrors and why there are spots on the moon and all that stuff? And the answer is, because God made it, and he loves it, and he cares about it. And that the heavenly condition is paying attention to the other and seeing the glory of God in the other person and indeed in the creation. You know, Lewis famously said about humility, humility is not thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking of ourselves less, <laughs> because we're paying attention to the other. Um, so if you look at the painting, we went, we went up the mountain. What happens there? Virgil says goodbye. Dante goes through a river, uh, he goes through the river Lethe, which he calls the river of good forgetting. So now his sins have all been purged. He doesn't have to deal with that stuff anymore. If you forget your sins before you've dealt with them, going down the pit and up the spirals, they're still itching away in there somewhere and they're going to catch you like those wild beasts. But when you finally purge them and give them over to God, God will take that painful memory away from you. That's the river of good forgetting. Then Dante invents a completely new river, which he calls Enue, which means the good river of good remembering. And in the river of good remembering, everything that was ever truly of God and of grace in his life, even stuff he's forgotten, is brought back to Dante. 
so he can draw from all the experiences he's ever had. And then he meets Beatrice, and uh, after her, Beatrice says, what took you so long, and all of that, um, they're reconciled, and he begins to rise from the paradise just by looking into Beatrice's eyes. Just the, radi the radiance of her love, which comes from heaven, draws him through her look up into heaven. Now, at a human practical level, at a, I'm not saying people literally get lifted off the earth, but you, you can have the experience of gazing into somebody's eyes and almost feeling you're being lifted off the earth. Um, but at a practical level, in terms of human, that is true. Sometimes we meet somebody who's so full of grace and so full of love that although we don't get the whole of the theology and we're not even if we sure we believe half of it, we just want to be with them. And there's something about being with them that mediates grace to us. And they often don't have to be quoting scripture or anything. Just the way they live mediates grace. So in the big allegory, Virgil represents how far we can get by our own lights. And that's a pretty good long way, but it's not to the heart of heaven. Only grace can do that. So actually, Beatrice is this beautiful girl that he met and who died young and about whom he dreamed and of whom he promised that he would one day write a poem such as had never been written ever by any man forever, woman, ever on earth. And that poem is the divine comedy <laughs> because she's the guide in it. So she's a real person. But she also represents the unmerited, free, beautiful, all-enabling grace of God that comes into our lives before we deserve it and that we keep forgetting and turning our back on, which is why he gets a ticking off from, from, <laughs> uh, from Beatrice, but which never gives up on us. I was once um, preparing a couple for marriage and we we're going through the words of the service and um, the word grace occurs very early in the, in the Anglican marriage service um, where we say that, that it is a sacrament, that it's a means of grace. And that, um, so I, I asked the, this couple what they understood by the word grace. And I had an amazingly powerful um, answer from the woman. She said, grace is God's refusal to accept the ultimacy of failure in a person's life. It's when you give up on yourself, but something that's not you is inside you won't let you give up and keeps pulling you back. And I said, that's, I think that's very true. Tell me more. And of course, it turned out that she, had been, she was a recovering alcoholic. She was somebody who had just wanted to roll over in the gutter and die. And God had not let her go. But at first... The operation of grace in her life felt like something nagging her and grabbing her. And, you know, she was resisting grace because she just wanted to take the easy path and stay in her own little hell. But grace wouldn't give up. So grace turns around and we talked about how marriage and a relationship can be one of the means of grace. There are other means of grace. What we mean in the Church of England, we define a sacrament as an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So in the story, excitedly, Dante gets to re be reunited with Beatrice and they rise through the heavens. But what's actually at work here in the deeper meaning of the story is the work of grace. Now, we did a talk uh, the other night. I'm going to assume that some of you say, but I'm going to try and make sure that what I say to today doesn't depend entirely on your having heard last night's talk. Just out of interest, who's heard it and who, who, who was there last night? So quite a few of you, but quite a few of you weren't. So don't worry if you weren't. Uh, uh, 
in that above a sunny sky talk, we asked the question, you know, is it only sky or can we see not space but the heavens? Dante saw the heavens. Dante, I believe, helped Lewis to see the heavens and, and Michael Ward is going to reveal that in astonishing ways uh, later on this afternoon. Uh, but um, does that mean that Dante literally thought that if you could get in a rocket ship and get up as far as the moon, you'd come to the first of the heavens? And then when you, when you ascended a little bit later, let's just look at them now. You can see them in the painting, can't you? Do you see the different colored arcs of sky? Let's just uh, look at it. Uh, this is another nice diagram from Dorothy Sayers' thing. Um, there's the Earth. First up is the heaven of the moon, the heaven of Mercury, the heaven of Venus, the heaven of the sun. The old system, it was called the Ptolemaic universe because it was first put out by, by the Greek philosopher Ptolemy as opposed to the Copernican, um, which was, we'll hear about was, you know, the, the heliocentric one. Um, I, I, you know how it is when you read books and, um, you don't know how to pronounce the name because you never heard anybody say it, but you read the book. You know, you went to, I, I have to say, I was reading about this quite a long time ago and I'd never heard it. And I thought it was called Copernicus. Um, uh, <laughs> You know, I was really relieved when it turned out to be Copernicus. You know, it's like, and you think Sophocles is Sophocles. But anyway, so um, Copernicus. So this is the pre-Copernican arrangement. So the idea is the Earth is in the center. And how does the moon move? Like, well, the idea is that the moon was set in like an invisible sphere, an entire sphere made out of crystal. And the moon itself, the visible moon is set in it. And the sphere is moving. That moves the moon around. But how does that sphere move? Well, the next sphere up is the sphere that the planet Venus is set in. It's all the way thing. And that's moving. And the motion of Venus is what moves the moon. Do you see what I mean? Like, like the, the, one, the motion of one sphere is giving motion to the next one. And so you go up the sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. And then um, the Greeks figured out how, this has got to end somewhere, you know. Something's got to be doing all the moving in the first place. So they imagined an unmoved mover. And uh, that was became one of the attributes of God. Um, but Dante said, the motion is love. It's love that moves all these things. And each turns because it loves that which is beyond it and cares about what is beyond it. And each one above turns the one below it because it has a care for it, that there's an exchange of love. And that's so the movement round and round of the spheres is moved by love. And the movement up through the spheres is moved by love. Now, did Dante literally mean that if you could have like taken a hot air balloon or a rocket ship or something and got to the sphere of moon, you would have walked around and met these people and then you would have gone into the next thing and like that? No. He thought that was part of creation, not part of heaven, the deepest heaven of meeting God. But he believed that that part of creation was so beautiful and so lucid and he believed it was beyond the shadow of the earth and beyond the fall that it could become, if you like, a pattern or a map for working out something of the beauty and variety of God's cosmos and of how he saves us. And he saw that you just... Nowadays you have these Briars, Migs, Tess... Was it Briggs, Myers, Tess? All these different personality types and, you know, men are from Mars, all that stuff. 
In the Middle Ages, they used ideas about these different heavens as ways of talking about different personalities. So, so you could meet a lunar kind of person who's a bit changeable, yeah? She can be full-on beautiful full moon, and then the next time you meet her, she's a little bit occluded, and she's not telling you half about herself, and then she comes out again, and, you know, you can meet that kind of person. And you can see that very beautifully... Or you can see that as kind of actually almost like a personality disorder. And lunacy uh, in the sense of madness is to do with Luna. Yeah. But the Platonists also had a great idea about the moon, which was they said, you can't yet look directly into the light of the sun. It'll blind you. So most people can't perceive truth directly. They need it reflected off of something else. And the moon is like the reflection. The moon is, in the words of an English poet, brilliance made bearable. Yeah? So uh, lots of ideas had been, if you like, projected onto, or if you like, drawn from this understanding. In fact, when you get up through all the spheres, when he finally gets up right to the core, he discovers this wonderful rose, and he realizes he was never going out, he was always going in. He was always coming closer into the heart of God and that really the heaven is incomprehensible. But this was a helpful pattern, a beautiful pattern. God had made this pattern and set the worlds moving and he believed we could learn that because he believed Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. Night unto night uttereth speech. Um, so he, Dante, felt that the pattern of the heavens was a good way of working through the sense of what it meant to journey into the reality of God himself. Okay? So, um, I'm going to do um, the same thing in a sense that, uh, that we did in, in the first talk, um, except I'm, because we're just doing one book and not two, I'm going to give you a little bit more about what happens in each... Um, of the, 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 the cantos. And in a sense, using the sense that C.S. Lewis and this, this uh, philosopher Alexander used it, we're going to do both um, contemplation and enjoyment. So I'm going to tell you about the first three spheres and just give you a little quick guide what happened. And then I'm going to read you my poem about how it was for me looking along the beam and not thinking about, can I say something clever about Dante the scholar and the old Dante the medieval, whatever, but just this is what it's like to travel with Dante and Beatrice through this when you know that this story is not about out there and back then. Dante and Beatrice, you know it's about in here and right now, okay? So that's what we're going to do. We're having a little bit of a scholarly, this is what goes on in the book, and then a poem that goes... Actually, this is what it feels like. This is how to enjoy it. Um, uh, there's a lovely uh, review uh, by the great uh, Irish poet Seamus Heaney, for whom Dante is incredibly important. Dante is an absolute pattern for Heaney. I, I had a long conversation with Heaney just at, uh, at the turn of the millennium, and um, uh, because he was quoting Dante so often, I said, I've got to talk to him about Dante, and I was able to do that. And he was so pleased to, to have somebody talk about Dan Dante and not about bodies found in the bog or the troubles, you know. He was, he was quite happy to have the conversation. 
And I said to him, I, I felt like he'd written his Inferno when he was writing in the darkest way about the Troubles. And that in his great poem, Station Island, it was his Purgatorio. And now in this astonishing, beautiful series from seeing things onwards, I felt like he was writing his Paradiso. And he said, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's what I'm doing. Um, and he finishes with amazing vision of light. He says in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, I had to make room in my mind and my imagination for the marvelous as well as the murderous. And this is Dante taking us into the marvelous in every sense. Um, so they rise up first, uh, Dante and Beatrice, from the earthly paradise into the first sphere of the beautiful, pearlescent, but changeable moon. How can that be a representation of the goodness of God in the heavens? Well, the people they meet are uh, people whose, in their lives, what needed to be redeemed in their lives, what had taken a shadowed or a flawed form, was changeability and inconstancy. Two of the chief people he meets there are uh, a girl called Picarda, who was one of his relatives. The thing about living in a small Italian city is that basically everybody you meet is either your aunt or your cousin, you know. Uh, you kind of, they're all related. So um, he meets Picarda, who had wanted to be uh, uh, a nun in a convent and had taken vows, but because of like a family dynasty thing, she allowed herself to be persuaded or was forced, depending on how you look at it, to leave the convent and get married and therefore be inconstant to the vows. And there was a similar story with an empress whose name ironically was Constance, but who had been in inconstant. So this is a heaven, especially for people who changed their minds and didn't keep their promises. Now, how can there be a good version of that? Well, actually, the phases of the moon and the beauty of her changes and the way she pulls the tides and the way she's part of movement and change and rhythm is part of God's good things. There are good reasons for changing your mind. <laughs> yeah? Can you find something constant? Does your outward inconstancy to certain things mean that you're trying to be constant towards a truth that you haven't found yet? Great politicians do sometimes change their minds. They get new information. They see things in a new way. They have the courage not to stick to a dumb plan because it was their plan. You know? There's a need for that. Um, there's a false version of it, but there is a redeemed version of it. And that is what uh, you find there. Um, so he has these conversations with people who are in that situation. But when they come towards them, he sees in them, in human form, the actual physical beauty of the moon herself. And even the things that might seem to be spots or blemishes in a human life have somehow been transfigured, if you like, into beauty spots. It's like in Julian of Norwich, who writes a little bit later than Dante, where she talks about the person who falls into the pit and is wounded and is rescued by God, and how the wounds themselves become jewels. In, in, in the afterlife and, and become resplendent, just as the wounds of Christ become a source of healing to others. You know, with what rapture, with what rapture gaze we on those glorious scars, you know. Uh, those wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. And you see this constantly in this poem. It's not 
a really naive poem like everybody has to be absolutely letter perfect and if they do everything just totally right and they have no blemish whatsoever in their life and they've kept all the rules then maybe they'll finally get to heaven that is not the christian gospel <laughs> and never was that is salvation by works and that paul specifically repudiates and that's why the gospel is good news because most of us don't manage to be constant and don't keep the rules all the time. The question is, do we just say, I did it my way and I don't have any regrets and I don't care, you know? Or is it that we say, no, I regret my changes. I was always looking for something constant in my inconstancy, but I never found it. Can I start to find it now? Do you see the difference? You know, I, I, um, I ride a Harley and I spend a lot of time with motorcyclists and um, I, I get asked to take biker funerals sometimes. And um, this widow, you know, of this guy who died on his bike came to me and we were organizing the funeral and she said, you know, like, well, you can choose music to play in the church you know, for CD. And she said, look, I know you're probably not going to say it, but, you know, he really wanted, do you think we could possibly have Bat Out of Hell? Like, <laughs> when the coffin's going out? And I thought about it for a bit and I said... Well, the bat's flying in the right direction, you know. <laughs> On the other hand, I have big problems, you know, Pauche, Frank Sinatra, with people wanting I did it my way at funerals. I mean, frankly, are you going to face the Almighty and say, well, regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, so so uh, it's not that these people have lived perfect lives. It's that their imperfections have been taken and healed and redeemed and paradoxically are becoming their very glories. There's no erasing, er erasing of everybody's personality type. People are really more fully themselves here than they ever were on earth. But here, the shadows are gone and we just see the glory. So he rises through the sphere of the moon and he meets... Um, the inconstant, whose constancy is renewed. And um, the discussion, All one of the great things about heaven is it's just fantastic conversation. Um, nobody talks about themselves. Everybody talks only, they only mention themselves when they're trying to illustrate a beautiful thing from God. So in every sphere, Dante has a serious intellectual conversation about what is the case. And in the sphere of the moon, they discuss... Um, the work of the select, and they discuss the freedom of the will, the very thing that could be shattered in inconstancy and could also be redeemed. And uh, the angels that we're, we talk about are the angels that are specifically guardian angels. And the virtue which is mentioned in these is the virtue of fortitude. Stickability, as my dad used to call it. <laughs> Staying at the thing. That's the very virtue that these people were deficient in in their life is the virtue that they most celebrate in heaven, fortitude. So they have an interesting time in the sphere of the moon. And uh, then he looks into Beatrice's eyes. And each time they rise up another heaven, Beatrice gets more beautiful. So then they rise up into the second heaven, which is Mercury. Now, Mercury is the messenger of the gods. Mercury is the person who... Um, who, who brings tidings. He is therefore the sphere or the God who is associated with language, but also, um, with, with, with bearing tidings. So whereas they talked about the angels 
in um, the moon sphere, the next order up in the heavenly hierarchies is the archangels, and it's the archangel Gabriel who brings the message to Mary and bears the good news to all mankind. So Dante is subtly saying, that winged figure who brings a message that you meet in classical, that's a dim anticipation, a kind of pre-Christian story that's really waiting for the archangel to come and speak to us. That's the true messenger. So that story is told and is remembered. And... Um, uh, Dante, for various reasons, also associated Mercury um, with uh, ambition, with people uh, who were always trying to be the first guy with the news and running around and, you know, trying to make a name for themselves and sending more emails than everybody else, the kind of 14th century equivalent of that. Um, so they meet a few people like the Emperor Justinian. Interestingly, they also meet Romeo, like of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, <laughs> and... Um, uh, they discuss, uh, among other things, uh, the history of the Roman Empire, the way the empire spread and you could get messages across everywhere. But then they talk about the mystery of redemption and how the angel, uh, the, uh, the archangel Gabriel came. So that's the second heaven, Mercury. Then they rise a little further up and they come to the third heaven, the heaven of, v of Venus, which Dante believed that... Uh, Paul had seen, had, as it were, had a vision of, which was why Paul was able to write 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, I know a man I know not in the flesh or not who was caught up into the third heaven, and there he saw things you cannot speak of. Um, so it's the vision of love, and because it's associated with Venus, it's particularly uh, lovers and pairs of lovers. Charles Martel was a famous lover. Kunitsa, who was an amazing, um, an amazing, she had a reputation in the generation before Dante as a courtesan in Venice, but she was the most generous hearted woman. And she had been made a widow and then she was kind of involved in various bits of power play. And she found the only way she could live independently was by, as it were, uh, offering very high-class, high-end favours to uh, sort of emperors and so on. But she had a habit of just actually not simply meeting these men's needs, but somehow offering them a warmth of love that sort of changed things. Even though it was broken and it shouldn't have been happening that way, there was something in her. And eventually, when she finally was able to pay off various debts that she needed, which is why she'd been doing it, she became a nun. And she entered into a life of contemplation. And now she's in the heaven of Venus. And do you remember back down in the Inferno when he met Paolo and Francesca and they were driven round and round in circles and they were carried away by merely mortal passions and it was just blinding smoke? Kunitsa is also whirling around, but she's carried away by the divine love and she is golden and radiant. And it's not the smoke, but the fire. It's the fire of love. And it's not a fire that hurts you. It's the fire that lit the, the burning bush. So she's radiant with a warmth of love and she whirls around, but she knows when to stop whirling and she's happy to stop and talk to Dante. And uh, so you see the good side of being carried away in love. Do you see how this is working? How that pattern is happening? And uh, that's the heaven of Venus. Now, I'm going to have to do a bit of zipping back and forth in these slides. But let me uh, 
So here is my take after three heavens of how it was for me. I allude partly also to Dante, Dante's love of Beatrice, the fact that now in heaven, Beatrice is showing him real truths that he couldn't possibly have borne when he was there on earth. You know, his love for Beatrice was very real, but also very imperfect. You know, Beatrice, in fact, he needed to delight in Beatrice simply in herself. It was never destined that they should marry each other. In those days, marriage was not a matter of choice for people. Beatrice had an arranged marriage with another guy called Portinari, who, and then she died young. Dante had an arranged marriage with a very nice and, and loving and motherly woman called Gemma, with whom he had three children. When they had a little girl, they called her Beatrice. Uh, you know, I don't think there was, I don't think Gemma had the least worries by the time she'd met with Dante. Beatrice was dead anyway, but that Dante was kind of some kind of ladies' man that was, but she knew that he had had a kind of mystical experience that was bringing him closer to Christ. And she honored that. And eventually when Dante was exiled, eventually she and her family came out and joined him in, in, in exile in Ravenna. But um, all our loving in this world gets a little bit tangled up. I mean, um, we're just coming up to the anniversary of Bob Dylan's great album, Tangled Up in Blue, um, which is, you know, about how all those things go wrong and how we keep seeking seeking the loving. In fact, of course, Bob Dylan uh, in, on that album make, makes a specific reference to Dante. He's thinking of Dante's Vita Nuova, which is the first book he wrote, which is the poems to Beatrice. Um, you remember in the D Dylan song, he meets this girl in a in, in a bar, and and then, but it's like nothing else is happening. She's just looking at him, um, and she bend down. She bends down to tie the laces of his shoe, tangled up in blue. And then he goes, and she lit a burner on the stove, offered me a pipe. Thought she'd never, you'd never say hello. She said, you look like the silent type. She opened up a book of poems and handed it to me, written by an Italian poet from the 13th century. And every one of those words rang true and glowed like burning coal, pouring off of every page like it was written in my soul from me to you, tangled up in blue. I don't think actually Dylan got into the Paradiso. I think he kind of was reading that earlier stuff, the love poetry. But here was my take then on um, going through those three heavens. And I hope as you hear this, you'll hear a little bit about the pearlescent moon. You'll hear a little bit, you know the other word for mercury is quicksilver. Yeah. So when you take a drop of mercury and you drop it into a Petri dish, which we were allowed to do when I was a kid, like nobody is allowed to do that now. You send it like in a big box and you've got lead lined gloves and everything. But you could, you would scatter into lots of little bits and go racing everywhere and then it'd come back together again. It's fantastic. Um, Quicksilver. I used to listen to a band called the Quicksilver Messenger Service. So <laughs> look up. Forget yourself, enjoy the glory. Apologies to those of you who've heard this poem before, but if it's a reasonable poem, hopefully it'll stand another reading. Uh, look up at the resplendent lights of heaven in all the glory of their otherness within you and beyond you, simply given. Let go your grandeur, love your littleness, begin a journey into clarity and find again the love in loveliness, the constant love in your inconstancy. Reflected light, that's the moon, you're not yet fit to bear, pearlescent preface to eternity. She glimmers through the veils you make her wear, 
delights and glories in each difference, in every variation everywhere. Now, let love raise and ravish every sense. We're in Mercury now. Quicksilver scatterings of consciousness. She makes you myriad-minded. You can dance in her swift sway and swing. The suddenness of ecstasy. Now we're up into the third heaven. Third heaven's heady swirl that lifts and flings her lovers into bliss. Remember, tenderly, you glimpsed a girl whose smile transfigured all without your knowing. The tangles of your loving here unfurl and find their freedom. Every knot undoing, mistakes unmade and unkind words unsaid, the spring released at last and freely flowing as freely you forgive yourselves. The seed of love, long planted, breathes and blossoms here where you in other one another, freed and ensphered, where love has cast out fear. So that's kind of what it felt like to me to have got um, that far. <laughs> now, when I wrote this sequence on reading the Commedia, I didn't want to just slavishly do, oh, now I'm going to do the next three theaters. And then, yeah, um, <laughs> I was kind of going to the places that I found myself. You can, I, you can sort of speed read down to you and go like, I remember I was someplace, you know, and there'll be certain bits where you suddenly slow down and you think, oh, I get it. I know this place. I regret to say I do that in the Inferno and the Purgatorio as well as the Paradiso. I say, oh, I know, I've been, I've been there, you know, I know what that's like. Um, so um, the next place I found myself is, in fact, the next sphere. I didn't do a lot on Mars and Jupiter and Saturn, but I did do quite a lot on the heaven of the sun because... The heaven of the sun, I personally find this almost the most exciting bit, um, apart from the final end and the mystic rose, uh, of the, um, it's the seventh heaven. I'm in seventh heaven. Um, sorry, not, it's not the seventh heaven, it's the, it's the fourth heaven. So, the sun, where would he put, uh, who would he put there in the heaven of the sun? Well, the sun is the light of truth, the pure, golden, radiant light. The reason why the special symbol of the Gospel of St. John is the eagle is because it was believed that eagles could look directly into the light of the sun. And John's prologue, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, the same was, is all telling you about the very being of God before it's reflected in anything material. It's only by John, by John 1.14 that you actually come down to the world of the visible. Yeah? And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his gl glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. We were able to see it because, because he was made flesh. He has seen me, has seen the Father. But it was believed that John was granted a mystical experience where he saw, saw light directly. So um, Dante makes this the sphere in which he meets the theologians, the real teachers of divine truth, the people who were able to articulate directly the truth of God. So he has a fest here. It's like, it's like the best sort of book festival you ever went to, where like all your favorite authors are there, even if they're dead, you know, it's great. So he meets Thomas Aquinas, Albertus Magnus, Peter Lombard, and then he meets King Solomon. You know, the wisdom of Solomon. And he meets Boethius, the author of um, 
the author of the, Contempl- the Consolation of Philosophy, a vital book for Dante, a vital book for me. He meets Bede, the great, uh, the great historian of the English church and people uh, and author of many other books. I'm so glad that Dante read Bede because it means he's heard of Northumberland and uh, St. Cuthbert and, uh, and he knows all about the English, which is, you know, it's just really important to me to know. Um, so uh, he meets uh, a lot of people that we don't know about, but some that we do, he meets Chrysostom uh, and St. Anselm and some who wrote the great book, Cur Deus Homo, Why Was God Man? Um, uh, people like that. Oh, by the way, in the sphere of heaven, I forgot, there's one other person I forgot to tell you about whom he met. He meets Rahab. Rahab the harlot. Rahab the one who let... Rahab is up there in the sphere of love, redeemed by Christ even though she was born before him. That's a pretty comprehensive view of the salvation that's offered in Christ. So anyway, in this fourth heaven, he gets to meet, uh, or he also meets um, St. Francis and St. Dominic and uh, Solomon. So let me tell you a little bit about meeting Francis and Dominic for him. This is astonishing. As you may know, he was a member of the third order of St. Francis. He was a tertiary. Um, these were the two great mendicant orders, as they were called. Mendicant meaning meaning beggars. The the Benedictine life, he meets Benedict too, by the way, but the Benedictine life, great and glorious as it is, is about stabilitas, isn't it? It's about staying in one place and building a community that benefits the community around you. But of course, that involves owning property, not individually as monks, but the monastery owns property and it owns land. And it had become very corrupt and it became like a big institute. And the abbot was a really important person you would never get to meet and all that stuff. And it was kind of building its own little castle. And there was a bit of a rebellion against that and a sense that we should have gospel poverty and we should do what Jesus said and have neither coat nor script nor anything and just go from town to town. And people needed to be out on the streets sharing the gospel. And two great movements sprang up, one founded by St. Dominic and the other founded by St. Francis to do that. And for St. Francis, it was pure love. It was just, it wasn't a big, I mean, there were later great intellectuals like St. Bonaventure in the Franciscan movement. But Francis just wanted to go out there, meet people with love. You know, the famous saying, it probably not, he didn't actually say it, but it's well attributed to him. You know, go out and preach the gospel to every creature. Use words if you have to. Yeah, you know, it was all about, But there were serious heresies abroad. There were then false teachings about God then as now. There was a rise in a kind of Manichaean thing was going on. It was a movement called Catharism, which said all this stuff is is evil. Everything physically created is evil. We have to get rid of these bodies. We have to just be be pure, abstract, intellectual souls, right? And that that was a dangerous teaching then, and it's a dangerous teaching now. Do you know where where the manichism is now? It's in digitization. It's in virtual instead of virtue. You even get these people who think they're going to kind of of upload their personalities onto some computer and then download themselves into something else. In this sphere, Dante gets to hear Solomon teach him about the, 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 the incarnation and the holy and glorious flesh. And then he hears Francis and Dominic. But here is the cool thing. This is just great. It only took a couple of generations for the Franciscans and the Dominicans to start being really full of rivalry and go like, we're the better order of complete poverty than you, you know? And the Dominicans were saying, you touchy-feely Franciscans with your bird feeding and, you know, what is that? You know, how are people going to resist serious heresy unless they have some decent preaching? 
We are the order of preachers. We're going to slay them with our 17-point sermons. And every point is going to start with the same letter. And, you know, and the Franciscans were saying, oh, no, come on, that's just words. Unless I demonstrate. You, you can you imagine, right? And people's big rivalry. So what does Dante do? Dante meets Francis, and he's expecting Francis to say, you heard about my great order. I see you remember. That's really good. You know, I'll just give that little Franciscan sign. Uh, but in fact... Francis says, do you know about Dominic? And Francis does this total praise of Dominic. Then he meets Dominic, and Dominic does this total phrase of praise of Francis. So Dante is very clearly saying, these stupid schismatic little rivalries on earth are nothing to do with heaven. Um, I'm getting wild hand signals, so it looks like I'm, am I, am I over my time? Okay, right. Well, we're going to accelerate our learning then. So, um, so, that happens. Now, how did that pan out for me? Well, I actually, this was a very important thing for me because I had an imaginative and an intellectual conversion while I was at Cambridge, imaginatively through the poets, but intellectually through reading great Christian theology and particularly Boethius. And um, this is how it felt like for me. And reading in, the, in that heaven, Dante has them all moving around in circles like great lights. All the different philosophers of the different times holding hands and circling around the one truth of God, which is symbolized by the light of the sun. This is how I took it. A sun-warmed sapling opening each leaf. My soul unfolded in your quickening ray. The inner brought the outer into life. I found the light within the light of day, the consolation of philosophy, turning a page in Cambridge. Found my way, my mind delighting in discovery as love of learning turned to learning love. An explanation deepened mystery drawing me out beyond what I could prove towards the next adventure. Every chance discovery, a sweet come hither wave, philosophy, a kind of circle dance, weaving between the present and the past, the whole truth present in a single glance that looked on me and everything in Christ. In him all things hold together. In him all things cohere. Threefold beholding, Look me into being, make me in love again from first to last, and still let me partake your holy seeing beyond the shifting shadow of the earth, minute particulars, eternal in their being, forming themselves into a single path from heaven to earth and back again to heaven, all patterned and perfected from each birth to each fruition, and all freely given to glory in and give the glory back. Call me again to set out from this haven and follow truth along her shining track. So rereading Dante about the, the heaven of the sun renewed my delight in offering my mind to God, loving God with all my mind, and sent me back to these philosophers. And it does every time I reread Dante. So, moving swiftly on. Here we are. We've only got to the heaven of the sun. So, we're going to have very swiftly now... He gets through the heaven of Mars. It's all the martial things. It's great. He wants to look at courage. And that is where all the different, most courageous people that you could meet, all the examples of great fortitude and courage, suddenly do this incredible, it's like they're flying spirits, right? So they do, it's like Dante anticipates like 
aerial um, displays by the RAF or whatever, or the Red Arrows, they all fly together and they form a huge cross, a huge red cross. He sees the cross and that is what the martial spirit, that is where the greatest battle took place. That is where Christ was, if you like, a martial victor destroying the enemies of Satan and death. And that's where he sees the cross, interestingly. Then he goes up into the heaven of Jupiter, and we have all stuff about kingliness and hospitality and the good side in that. And then the heaven of Saturn, which um, in the classical world, Saturn was kind of generally bad news, but he redeem redeems it and says, these are the people who lose everything for Christ, and they are the contemplatives. That's the heaven of the contemplatives. And interestingly, some of the best of those suddenly... They all start blushing, and he's going like, why are you blushing? And he's, they say, we can see what they're doing down on earth. <laughs> and they're so horrified at the way the monastic life and the life of prayer has just been turned into a corrupt money-making machine down on earth. And they're horrified, and they speak out against it. Um, so then you see there's a ladder. And he's lifted by grace by Beatrice up on this ladder. They go up to the fixed stars. They go to the crystalline heaven. And then you see this rose. And there's this extraordinary thing where Dante, in this scheme, the earth was the center and you're going out and out and each sphere is bigger and you're further and further away from home, aren't you? And um, then when he gets beyond all the images to the heart of God, suddenly he has a complete shift in perspective and realizes he was never traveling out. He was always traveling in. That God is that person whose, whose circumference is nowhere, whose center is everywhere. That whenever we come closer to God, we come closer to home and to inness. And the final vision of heaven, all these people who are in these spheres, he suddenly sees as like petals of a great white rose. And he sees the heart of God's love causing the cosmos to flower. And it's really beautiful. And he looks out and for a moment he sees the whole cosmos as God sees it. And he says it's like there were the scattered leaves of a book that have all been finally bound together as they should be in a single spine. And it's amazing. It's like, you remember that Beatles song, Across the Universe? Words are flying out like endless things. They tumble as they make their way across the universe. Images, images of broken. Do you remember that? And it's all like weirdly scattered. That's not a true spiritual experience. I mean, it's a great song, but a true spiritual experience is to see these things gathered and bound together in their source in God. And that's what he sees. So um, I will close. You've heard this poem from me before if you were there, but it kind of um, uh, sums up, I suppose, the experience of reading the poem for me. And um, that's why I include the fact that at the end of it, you, you've, been, you've been along the beam, right? You've been totally into it. And then you come out of it and you say, wait a minute, I'm just a bloke sitting here with a book in my hand. But a minute ago, I was in heaven. And instead of making you feel disappointed, it makes you long to get where he was and see that. Just like after I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobes, I spent a lot of time just knocking on the backs of cupboards, you know, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> and um, so... Uh, this poem ends actually with longing. A white rose opens in a quiet arbor where I sit reading Dante. Paradise unfolding in me opens hour by hour in sunlight and amidst the hum of bees on a late afternoon. I think of how everything flowers, 
The whole universe itself is still unfolding, even now, sprung from a stem of singularity which petals time and space. I think of how the very elements that let my body be began and will continue in the stars, whose light and distance frame our mystery, and how my shadowed heart still loves, still bears with every beat that animates my being, eternal yearnings through the turning years. I turn back to the lines that light my seeing and lift me to the limits of all thought and long that I might also find that freeing and enabling love and so be caught and lifted into his renewing heaven. Evening glimmers and the stars come out. Venus is shining clear. My prayers are woven into a sounding song, a symphony as all creation gives back what is given in music made to praise the mystery who is both gift and giver. Something stirs a grace in me beyond my memory. I close the book and look up at the stars. Thank you. Thank you, Malcolm, and thank you for traveling with me on the Lewis Festival Scholar Series today. Please know the C.S. Lewis Festival is happy to announce that there will be an in-person festival this coming September along the beautiful shores of Lake Michigan in Petoskey, Michigan. Everything kicks off on Friday, September 10th, with the keynote address by best-selling author Philip Yancey. Our mission is to provide an enriching cultural experience for all people that explores the life and work of C.S. Lewis through the collaborations by the arts, education, and faith communities. Over 24,000 people have attended a variety of events since inception. Wouldn't you like to join us? To become a part of the Lewis family or to learn more about the festival, please go to our website, cslewisfestival.org. That's cslewisfestival.org. Please join me again next Friday at 12 noon in this series of four talks on Lewis, featuring author and Lewis scholar, Reverend Dr. Michael Ward. Thanks to podcast producer Zach Smith of Hands Media and recording engineer Peter Monti. On behalf of the Lewis Festival, thank you for listening. Here's to Narnia and the North. <laughs>